Welcome to New Piney Grove Baptist Church, where one of our core values is Christian education. Let's tune in to this week's message. I may not be like some of these people. I didn't live a moral life. I knew well of my sins. Many times I tried to change myself. But then you sent your spirit. And it changed me. So glory, glory to the Lamb that was slain for me. And I thank you, God, for changing me and then calling me. Transgressions of your way. And my prayer that you receive all the credit from my words today. In Jesus' name. Amen. James may be perhaps one of the most controversial books in the Bible. You see, James might have been considered, Brother Jeff, a rebel in his day. While it is known that we are saved by grace. And grace alone. James was a rebel because the grace that came by faith, James said it can't come by faith alone. He said it's got to be accompanied with work. This, this seemed like a contradiction of Paul letter, but it really wasn't. James is basically saying if you got faith, then it's going to manifest itself somehow. The devil is a liar. He is a master of deception. It's in his DNA. It's his occupation. It's his job. There are many tactics that the evil one used to deceive us. But most often than not, the devil don't need to do anything to deceive us because many people make his job easy by deceiving 
themselves. James writes to an audience. He penned this letter because he was concerned about many of his readers who were straying away from a life of holiness. And, and, and I, I, I know, again, it is popular to talk about grace and grace alone and that Jesus loves us anyhow. All those things are true, but James, like me, was concerned because he saw a shift in the spiritual paradigm. So his purpose in writing this letter was to try to transform behavior. In my mind, really, it's nothing wrong with you falling short into sin as long as you acknowledge that that's what it is. Please understand that we all have sin. We all will continue to sin. That's why God gave us a method to deal with our sin, even after being saved. But like James, I see a par paradigm shift to where people are sinning and they think it's okay. So like James, I, I want to speak on the option of the Holy Spirit to transform behavior. You see, James let us deal with practice of the Christian faith more than it deal with principles of the Christian faith. See, practice is what you hear. Excuse me. Principles is what you hear, and practice is what you do. So after a standard introduction where he's writing to these people who've been diverse, dispersed, because of, of persecution, and this may be the reason that they are slipping back into worldly habits. James shocks his readers in verse 2. So I want you to go with me there, James 1 and 2. And he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, let, let me say this up front. This is going to be a Bible study lesson. We're going to look at the scripture. I know you can read this real quickly, but we're going to break it down. The word count means to consider. It implies reflective thinking. The, the, the phrase to fall into implies an, an involuntary action. It's something that often happens, but it's unexpected. And in this context, the word various can be understood as manifold. Don't let me lose you this morning. The idea here is several ways. The word is used as something that is diversified. It implies different types. That's why the King James Version translates this word as diverse. A correct interpretation would be all kinds of different trials. The word trial conveys the idea of testing by examination. Testing by examination, but it also carries the sense of temptation as well. So I want to present to you 
that there are two types of trials that you are going to experience. One is divine trial for the purpose of a proof of your genuine faith, while the other is demonic trial designed to cause your faith to fail. Now, can, I, can, I, can I make it make sure you understand? Some trials can be divine for the purpose of proof of genuineness of faith. While others can be demonic designed to cause faith to fail. And understanding these facts are so critical that James writes this in verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Faith in Christ will be tested. Now, what did I say? Faith in Christ will be tested. Godly, divinely test of faith brings about perfection. The devil demonically tests us to reveal imperfection. Nevertheless, both are beneficial for Christian growth. Can I, can I, can I give you an example? See, some of us think that, you know, we don't want but one type of test, and that's the divine test, but really, we most often get tested demonically. But let me give you an example of why both of them are, are necessary. I do a little planning. I have a couple of gardens out there. My mentor, Maddie Jones, be asking me about my garden there once in a while. But Maddie, I got it out there this year. I don't know what's going to happen. But here's where I found out. Vegetable in a garden can't thrive on Sunday days only. They also need cloudy days that produce rain. We may not like the thunder. We may not like the lightning. But we need the rain, which comes to both of them. So we need to learn, if you look at this passage, James saying, you need to learn patience when the storms of life come because they're going to produce growth. I know we're living in an area where I look at a lot of weather stuff because mainly for grass and for going on the lake. And we know we got wet out one place and hot in another place. And, and I hear my wife sometimes when she be praying, Lord, don't let no tornadoes, don't let no... And, 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 and that's a good prayer. But the things that accompany the rain sometimes are things that we don't like. We don't want. But we need the rain. And after it rains, the crops begin to grow. This is that perfect work that James is speaking of. Knowing that some of his readers were going to say, mm, well, I don't know about all that. They weren't going to understand because they couldn't figure it out. James writes this in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally without reproach, 
and it will be given to him. In times of trial, y'all hear me now, human wisdom is your greatest hindrance. It is inadequate and it will deceive you. James encouraged godly wisdom. God supplies wisdom is unlimited and it's ready available always for anyone who acts. But James said, hold up. But let him ask, verse 6, in faith. With no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let that man suppose he will not receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. James is saying we must be convinced that the Lord, number one, he loves us. And number two, he cares for us. So if the rain comes and it comes with tornado and hell and all that, we know that God still loves you and he cares for you. So we must pray confidently knowing that nothing is impossible with God. If we doubt his goodness and his power, we will have no stability in our life. Wherever the storm comes, wherever trouble comes, we're going to be in the wind because we're doubting. Uh, I think we sang a song that says something like, the wind and the waves still know his name. Well, are you thinking meteorology or are you thinking spiritually? If we don't believe that the wind and the wave knows his name, if we don't believe that God has all power, when the storm comes, don't you think God knew the storm was coming? So what we need to do is to change our prayer. Instead of asking God to take it away, ask God, what can I learn from this God? Why have you allowed me to experience this? There's, there is a reason. Ain't they got to be a reason? There is a reason. And even if God don't give you the reason, he's still God. Amen. But here's the point that James also brought out. Trials for Christians have no respect a person. So James continues in verse 9. With these words. Let the lower brother glory in his exhortation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as follows, as the flower of the fields, he will pass away. No sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass. Its flower fall, its beautiful appearance perish. So the rich man also fade away in his pursuits. I want to just kind of look at this in a different way before I get to really what it means. All of us are growing. Every second you get older. It just seemed like yesterday that I was about 27 years old, Kalea. Even when I think about being here deep, 
26 plus years, I'm amazed that time has passed. I came here with black hair. About 180 pounds. I ain't that no more. Time will change everybody. I don't care whether you're young or old, because if you're young, you're going to be old. And James is saying, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, remember this. Death levels life playing field. It is the ultimate equalizer. Whether a poor man or a rich man, death is going to overtake both of them. He's saying a lower or a poor brother can rejoice because he is a joint heir with Christ and death is only going to open the door to eternity for him. But for the rich brother, he becomes humble when he realizes that all his riches can't buy him eternity. So with that thought in mind, James says this in verse 12, Blessed or blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life which the Lord has promised to love those, to give those who love him. The word blessed is often translated as happy. But here it can be best understood as fortunate. The idea behind this Greek word is to be well off. So one Greek scholar, his rendition reads like this. Congratulations to the man who has persevered under steadfast trial. It's a congratulation. The blessed man is one who has passed a divine final exam. But instead of getting a diploma, he gets a crown. All right. Now that's a divine test. But we also have a demonic test. And James knew that those who failed that demonic test was prone to blame God. You know, Paul had this problem in his day, too. And the, and the basic what he's saying is, God made me this way. If I got these evil, evil thoughts and God done made me, then I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. They're just door, there, and I will act on these evil things. Mm-hmm. So they use faulty logic. If my eyes are foreseeing, then I'm going to see everything. If my mouth and stomach are for eating, then I'm going to eat anything I want. And if my private parts are, y'all read the rest of that. So he knew this. So he writes this. Let no one says when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one 
is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desires have conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, bring forth death. This is a rebuke to all those who are going to make excuses for their sinning. If she hadn't dressed the way she did, I wouldn't have did what I did. If I didn't see his six pack, I wouldn't have touched his stomach. But man is always shifting responsibility for sin. If he got enough sense not to blame God, he's going to blame modern psychology, which calls sin a sickness. Or if he, from the hood, he's going to use his street mentality and blame his environment. But James make it abundantly clear. We can't blame God. Can't blame society. We can't blame the streets. We got to take responsibility for our own sinful behavior. I'm doing a, uh, I just finished up a counseling course, a Christian counseling course. And one of the things that, that uh, was brought out in the course, and I keep pushing it, and that is accountability and confrontation. We're going to have to learn that when people start making excuses about sin or anything else, to confront them. That includes coming to church. So I confront y'all. We can go everywhere we want to go, where we want to go, at any expense. But when it comes to church, we tired. <laughs> go on, Will Carson. See, God may test us, but he never tempts us. Sin originated from within us. It's a byproduct of our old, evil, fallen, ungenerated nature. If we blame God, it's an error of deception. So James does something in verse 16 that we want to look at. He said, do not be deceived. My beloved brethren. So he's talking to church folk, brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creation. This is a warning against self-deception. He said, do not be deceived. The King James uses a word called error, E-R-R. It's a Greek word called plano. And the reason I mention that is because it's going to be another word later on. 
This is plano, P-L-A-N-A-O. It really means to stray away from the truth, thus the modern translation translated as being deceived. James makes it clear that the source of temptation to sin, which is evil, does not come from God. Why? Because everything God does is good. He is the source of everything good. Think about doing creation. God said after he created everything, it's good. After man, he said it was very good. As a creator, God is the source of light as well. He said, let there be light. That means light. Now, if God is the source of good and light, then he can't be giving bad and dark. He has not changed or shifted his position. He is not like a shadow where the sun goes, the shadow moves. He is steadfast. See, creation came forth by the word of God. And that same word became flesh, which we call the truth, the way, and the life. Jesus came into the word to give us life so that we would be the first fruit of his creation. In creation, he said, let us make man in our own image and as our likeness. So this leads James to conclude his concern about the trials. Verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, every, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He is saying, since you are this, the first creation of God in his own image, your action ought to be like this. He's advising the Christian to, to do three things, to be three things. First one is swift, which implies be ready. Anybody here ever raised track, ran track? You know when you're on the track field, you got your starting line. And you just don't get out there and start running. The star will come up at some point, I don't care what you said, word of God, to get ready to shoot it. And he says something like, take your mark. This is what this thing said. Be swift to take your mark. And then he says, be slow. Slow at the sense of delay. Or as in waiting. When you take your mark, you don't run right then. You're waiting. You don't get impatient because many runs have been disqualified with a false start. He uses slow twice and swift one. And one scholar said that's why he gave us two ears and one mouth. We need to listen more than we talk. You ever been around somebody you can't get a word out? Every time you say something, they go. All right. Slow implies patience. 
You married couples out there? You're going to have to learn to shut up. If you respond to everything that comes out of your spouse's mouth without thinking, it's going to be an unhappy household. <laughs> Being patient is important when it comes to our emotions. Our emotions, they're like human wisdom. It can deceive you. And notice, notice what he said. He says, for the wrath of man does not preach the righteousness of God. The word wrath in this context means resentment. I know a lot of times wrath, maybe you think wrath is going to hit somebody, but it means resent, resentment. And resentment don't necessarily have to be seen. You don't go around and say, I resent that. You just hold it on the inside. And when you hold it on the inside, it's like a time bomb. Let me, let me burst another theological elephant. There are two biblical words that are interchangeable that's translated as anger and sometimes it's translated as wrath. In Ephesians 4 and 26, there's a most quoted scripture. Be angry, be angry, be angry and sin not. And some people have taken this word or get to mean that they have a right to get angry because God said it. But in that same passage, in verse 31, Ephesians 4, it says, let anger be put away from you. Now, how in the world can it tell you to be something and tell you not to do it? God is not schizophrenic. Yeah. What is it that he used two different words? When he said, let it not be among, it's get so. I mean, it's, it's orgay, excuse me, not orgazo. And, and, and the first word means indignation or righteous anger. It was the anger that Jesus displayed when he went into the temple and whip those people out. But notice what Jesus said. He said, this is my father's house. He wasn't angry because of something that happened to him. He was angry because of something that they did to his father. That's righteous indignation. Right. is translated as wrath. That's the one where he says down in there, let it be taken away from him. It means to be vindictive. But there's a third word in the Bible. It's in Colossians. Thymos. It's translated only as wrath. It literally means to well up, to ball over. It has a sense of, 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 of jealous passion. It's the word that speaks of Jesus when Israel was, was fooling around with idols. It's like a husband who's, who don't call his wife an infidelity and he's enraged about it. This is what he's saying. That type of anger don't work the righteousness of God. 
because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Here's another example why we don't trust God, yeah. If, if, if vengeance belongs to God, to God, he said, I will repay, why are we trying to pay it back? Why are we trying to get back if we believe that? If we believe that vengeance of the Lord and he's going to take care of us and say he's going to fight my battles, why are we fighting? Because Doc, we don't believe it. Do you realize that when you being vindictive towards somebody, you stepping in God's place? Y'all, y'all, y'all hold this out. Y'all hold this out. We ain't done yet. Because vengeance is of the Lord. James write this in verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. And then he speaks our key verse. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Can we break this verse down? Filthiness includes every form of impurity. Every form. Whether it's spiritual, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional. Every form. He says, lay aside. This phrase here, lay aside, I want you to think with me, for, for those that ever been around the countryside, and some of you may even experience it. You ever been around when a skunk sprays? If a skunk sprays on your clothes, don't send it to the cleaners. Just go and get you a can, get in the backyard and burn it up or bury it. You will not get that smell out. Sin has skunked us. So he is saying, lay it aside, take it off. Not only that, this overflow of wickedness, what it really means is an evil hangover or holdover from your unconverted days. In other words, those things that you had in your past, you're still trying to bring them along with you. And I give you kind of an example. You don't got married, but you ain't threw away your little black book yet. And every once in a while when you get long, you say, I just called to see how you were doing. That's a hangover from your past. Lay it aside. It also could mean that your sin is overflowing on somebody around you. I, 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 I know for myself because being uh, someone who got into pornography in my adult life, as much as I tried to hide it from my son, one day in his room, Wondering why he didn't make up the bed. I began to try to make it up for him and looked under the mattress and I saw all kinds of stuff. Some of it was mine. 
that I had hanging over. Lay it aside. It's been skunked. The meaning is clear. In order to see the truths of God's word, we must be morally clean. In other words, we got to get rid of some stuff. He mentioned this implanted, or the King James saying, grafted word, it implies something that is put in later on becomes natural and takes over. Completely takes over. And then in our key verse, that word deceiving. This is the verb, this is the different word. Paralogsigmia. It means to dilute by false reasoning. And it has the implication of, of deluding yourself by false reasoning. I'm going to give you some examples, but later on. Deception come from thinking that we have done all that is necessary when actually listening to the word is only be the beginning. If we just listen to the word, there's a, there's a, a, a saying in, in, in theological cir circle called sit, soak, and sour. <laughs> if we just sit there and listen to the word of God, maybe we'll think about it, we'll soak on it for a while. If we don't do anything but sit and soak, it's going to sour. So he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forget what kind of man he is. To look into the mirror of God's word involves an obligation with a ready response. Take your mark. The phrase look intently implies it means stooping down to get a closer look. Now, I don't have to stoop down to see that my shoes need tying, but I got to bend down to retie. But the idea is to bend yourself down and look underneath to get a closer look. And it's important because it's saying that what I'm trying to find through a careful examination is very, very important. But you know what? I, I, I think us Christians, we got another, another problem with looking into the mirror. How many of y'all uh, take showers? And sometimes you're in a uh, bathroom that don't have a very good exhaust. You take a shower, when you get out of the shower, the mirror is all fogged up, right? Can you imagine going to that fogged up mirror, ladies, and putting on makeup? Putting on eyelashes? Yeah. 
No, you got to clean that mirror. And you can't just clear it with, with, a, with a rag. You, 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 got, you got to get something special to clean up if you really want to see it clearly. The problem with us is that we don't care. We don't want to cleanse it. <laughs> we got a lot of fog mirrors in our homes. I mean literally. Some of you mamas let some of these girls walk out here with some of that stuff on. Y'all mirrors fogged up big time. I realize I'm old and I'm set in my way, but some things I don't need to see, and I know these young guys don't need to see either. We deceive ourselves in believing that coming early to attend faith development Sacrificing our Wednesdays to come to faith development is no big deal. Others think that, yeah, I come to faith development. I listen to every subject. It's good to listen to. And you sit, soak, and solve. Now, my message today should challenge both of these mindsets. Unless hearing is followed by obedience, the consequences may be tragic. And I know I'm taking a long time today, but this is how important this is. Jesus spoke a parable of two different hearers. Recorded in Matthew 7, verse 24, let me read it for you. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken them to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended and the flood came and the wind blew and beat upon the house and it fails not. For it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these words of mine and does them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the flood came, the wind blew and beat upon the house, and it failed. And great was the fall of it. The proper way for Christians to handle both the divine and demonic testing of trial is found in God's word. We must be receptive to the word, responsive to the word, and we must resolve to obey the word. All three are essential for our spiritual growth. In other words, we must accept God's word, act on God's word, and abide by God's word. See, we hear a lot, but we deceive ourselves. We hear things like flee fornication, 
live a life of moral sexual purity, but we deceive ourselves in saying that we're going to get married anyway. We here turn the other cheek, but we deceive ourselves by saying, he hit me first. <laughs> we here love your wives as Christ loved the church, but we deceive ourselves by saying, she disrespected me. We here submit unto your own husband, but we deceive ourselves by saying, he ain't in his rightful place. And Sunday after Sunday, we hear the sinner's prayer. But we deceive ourselves by saying, I got time. Stand with me now. See, when you get to heaven, you ain't going to be able to blame God. I didn't know. You don't know calculus because you never took the course. But it was available. It was available. You chose not to take it. And salvation is available. And it's your choice. So just repeat with me as we say this together. Lord Jesus, I believe in my heart that you are the Son of God. Thanks for listening. We pray that you have been blessed by the message. Visit us on the web at npgbc.org for contact information, service times, or directions to our place of worship.